Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 17th of September 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to discuss the poachers turned gamekeepers in charge of your financial security, where we're going to discuss the roster of new personnel that Josh Frydenberg has put in charge of uh, financial regulation. And secondly, AUKUS... The drums of war are deafening and we'll be discussing the new alliance between Australia, the USA and UK that is making us a strategic target in our region. Uh, now, if you like the show, don't forget to like and subscribe and hit the notification bell so that you know when the new episodes come out and share this as widely as possible. Uh, now, on to our first topic, the poachers turned gamekeepers in charge of your financial security. Now, to preface what we're about to discuss in terms of the, um, the new personnel that Treasurer Josh Feidenberg is bringing in to um, basically scrap any regulations over the banking system, I want to mention a, uh, a video interview that you conducted um, with a fellow by the name of Wayne Ditchburn last week in which we issued a media release for yesterday. Uh, and this is an example of um, the sort of um, uh, destruction that unregulated banks can cause on individuals. And I think this is something that could be, uh, from watching that video, made into um, a sequel to The Castle, really. Yeah, you, oh, for sure. That He is, he is um, exactly like the guy in The Castle. Um, content with his life, and a big bank came along and destroyed it. Uh, Wayne Ditchburn is a great guy. I really recommend people watch this. It goes for an hour and a half each. The story of his 12-year fight with the bank, and, that, and he and he and his partner Rowena Hardy, she um, uh, makes an excellent, gives excellent insights as well. This is what we're fighting for because it's not just one person in Wayne Ditchburn, or it's not just 140 people over there in Western Australia and Sterling First victims. There's tens of thousands of these around Australia. And the, it's not that there's no regulation in Australia, but the kind of regulation we have um, has been rightly called fake regulation. It's the regulation when you want to appear to have a regulation system, but you don't want to regulate because you're opposed to regulation. And we're going to go through the, the, ideology, the ideological opposition to regulation. And if you don't have it, then the predators are running the jungle. Right, and they get away with it. And Wayne's story is extraordinary, so I really recommend people watch it. And, and uh, the, we make a point at the end of the interview that we also made in our release yesterday, Elisa, which is that the fight we're waging by discussing this on our show, and what we've, you know, our regular viewers are aware, you know, the, the fight for a postal bank, the fight against bail-in, the fight for Glass-Steagall, separation of the banks, etc. All those things the Citizens Party has been doing really hard for quite a few years now. Um, we're fighting to clean up the financial system and make it uh, functional in the sense that, you know, benefiting the Australian people, serve the real economy, right? And we're not winning yet. You know, we had a, we had a Royal Commission mm. where everyone thought, finally, bringing real attention to the corruption in the system and it was all laid bare, 
And one of the things we're going to talk about is two and a half years later, um, nothing's been done, right? Like, the, in fact, it's worse. But Wayne Ditchburn is a living example that should inspire us all of why you don't give up. He beat his bank, not totally, but effectively, he beat his bank because he didn't give up. But his is an extraordinary case, right? But we need to make sure we don't give up because you cannot have a country without a functioning financial system. And what they've just done now to the regulators in Australia is a, makes a mockery of financial regulation. So we're going to focus on two uh, of these new quote-unquote regulators. Um, the first is Joe Longo, the new head of ASIC, and the second is Nicholas Moore, who's just been brought in as the new head of the Financial Regulator Assessment Authority. And we'll come back to him in a moment. But first of all, uh, Joe Longo, and um, click on the I button on the top right-hand corner to find out more. There's an article uh, in this week's Australian Alert Service on uh, the background of who Joe Longo is. Um, he started off in terms of the big time of his career as Alan Bond's lawyer. Well, he's so we're going to cover the fact that he's been a poacher turned gamekeeper twice. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, he came in from defending as a lawyer the financial predators into running enforcement of the law for ASIC after criticising the law. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so he was... Um, a big during this period when he was uh, in the law firm defending Alan Bond, he was a big defender of the rights of white yes. collar uh, criminals, and he spoke uh, to parliamentary inquiries about that. He wrote papers about it. He thought he he the, uh, the way older viewers will remember back in the nineties, um, Alan Bond and Christopher Scase were held up as exemplary of the worst excesses of the eighties because they were. And a lot of people, a lot of normal, everyday people lost a lot of money investing with them, right? Um, but he called the attention that they got from the then the predecessor of ASIC, the Australian Securities Commission, he said it was an overreaction. And as you said, he was really concerned about the civil rights mm. of white-collar criminals. And it's because of the kinds of arguments that he made that, you know, years later, one of the the, the, uh, the chair of ASIC in 2014, uh, Greg Medcraft, said Australia is a paradise for white-collar criminals because this is the one country they don't go to jail, mm -hmm. right? Anyway, Joe Longo, uh, you know, he, you can tell what side of the, of the argument he was on when he was working for Alan Bond. Now, in 1995, Joe Longo went on to join um, the Australian Securities Commission in WA, which was the precursor to ASIC. He was very quickly promoted up the ranks and in 1996 he became the National Director for Enforcement for the ASC. Uh, now so he's gone from defending Alan Bond, the number one white-collar disaster in Australia, to now the, the head of enforcement for the financial cop. <laughs> now these, I'm going to read out some headlines during the mid, mid to late 1990s while he was in that position, which give you a sense of uh, how, how effective, he was. effective his enforcement was. Uh, corporate watchdog, more bark than bite. ASC verdict, this watchdog lacks bite. Uh, and the watchdog no one fears, which was a, a real scathing article by Adele Ferguson in 2000. Yep. Um, so he had that reign for some time. He went on, uh, then he left ASC and became... Uh, a leading figure at Deutsche Bank for 17 years. So in Deutsche Bank, he's a lawyer for one of the most scandal-ridden investment banks in the world. 
coincidentally, the bank that Josh Frydenberg also worked for, the investment bank, and, and Senator Jane Hume, who we call the Senator for Bankers, right? They're both from Deutsche Bank as well. Um, now, they claim that Frydenberg and Longo claim they didn't know each other there. Well, okay, whatever. I mean, Fryden, Longo was, Frydenberg was based in Australia. Longo was, did serve some of his time with Deutsche Bank over in London and Europe. But what that means is he was closer to the crimes <laughs> when he was over there in London and Europe. And he's the Deutsche Bank lawyer trying to defend Deutsche Bank's record of criminality. That's what he did for the seven, last 17 years. And Deutsche Bank is a bank that's been, it's not only paid hundreds of millions of fines for financial misconduct, but it's been dubbed by the International Monetary Fund as the bank most likely to cause a global systemic blowout because of its financial situation at the moment and for a while. Um, now, after the Australian Royal Commission into banking, um, the, the push for actual enforcement got stronger. And by 2019, that had reached a point where... Um, the heads of ASIC, Shipton, James Shipton and his deputy, Daniel Crennan, were actually starting to prosecute and get serious. Well, there's a, there's a concrete measure of what they did, Elisa, because remember, because we've covered the James Shipton scandal quite a bit in the last few months, but he got appointed head of ASIC in November 2017. That was at the start of the month. And by the end of that month, the push for a royal commission had just got out of the government's control and Turnbull had to jump before he was pushed so he could, he could come up with terms of reference they knew they were going to have to have one, but he came up with terms of reference approved by the banks, remember, right? Yep. So um, Shipton takes his job, but his first 12 months in the job, all, his, all he experiences is the agency he leads being slayed you know, at the Royal Commission every day for mm. its failings, right? So at the end of the Royal Commission in 2019, when, when the, um, the commissioner, Kenneth Haynes, said to ASIC, you should ask yourself this question: Why not litigate? That means why aren't we enforce? Why aren't we taking these these banks to court and enforcing the law instead of having these things called enforceable undertakings, which are like parking fines to the banks? They, they and in in 2018 there'd been 45 of these enforceable undertakings, or, or roughly around then. By 2020, there were zero. Shipton dropped those things, those those slap on the wrist parking fines, and he went after the banks in court and Daniel Crennan said the banks should fear us. There was definitely a new sheriff in town under Shipton and Crennan for those two years after the Royal Commission. And what happened? Frydenberg got him out of there. Yep, so by, the, by late 2020, under a false scandal um, similar to the whole Christine Holgate affair at around about the same time, um, those two were out. And who was brought back? Joe Longo. Joe Longo. Now, and... Uh, Joe Longo last week, he and his new deputy, uh, Sarah Court, gave an interview uh, to the Financial Review and The Australian where they said, why not litigate has had its day? It only had two years. It didn't even really get a chance to be really implemented. And they said enforceable undertakings are back. The whole agenda, they, they, they have completely reversed what those guys were trying to do. And the key point of this that is in this article is just as Longo came to the regulator the first time after the, the, the white-collar criminal set was complaining the regulator was too tough, he came in and generated those headlines like Adele Ferguson, the watchdog no one fears. 17 years later, everyone, the banks are complaining the regulator's too tough again. Joe Longo's brought back. This is the guy yeah. who is the cop on the beat making sure you don't get robbed by your bank people. Yep. 
And this is a deliberate appointment by Josh Frydenberg. Now, before we get to Nicholas Moore, we just want to give a bit of the background about the deregulation of the financial system that created this white-collar paradise. Uh, paradise for criminals. Um, and a key part of it was when Menzies in 1959 stripped the Commonwealth Bank of all regu regulatory powers, handing it to the Reserve Bank. In that post-1950s period, um, in parallel with the United States, there was a, a big rise of financial companies separate from banks uh, for people to finance cars and consumer good purchases. But all the major banks in Australia began to take stakes in such financial companies. And in the 19... And, and they did it, just to be clear, um, because the Commonwealth Bank had been a very aggressive regulator over the banks, right? So the, the men, what Menzies did was straight away watering that down a bit. But, the, but they still had... Yeah, this was the 50s. They still had regulation, let me assure you. However, there were different rules for non-banks, and so what the banks did is they, is they started doing a lot of their activity through these non-bank finance companies. Mm -hmm. And what they did is set and train these events you're about to go through. Yeah, so in the 1960s, um, a lot of these finance companies had heavily moved into property speculation, takeovers and so forth. And this included the very first deals of Alan Bond and John Elliott and others. Yep. Um, investment banks and corporate raiders sprang up to cash in on the property and the mining booms and there were very few restrictions on the stakes that our banks could have in these investment banks. And that, this brought us into the 1970s and the 80s. We're now entering the era of people like Laurie Connell, Christopher Scase. And Bondi. And in this period, globally, bank deregulation was beginning to take off. In 1971, you had the end of the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates, and that allowed uh, the sluice gates to be open for all kinds of speculations on currencies, on interest rates, and so forth. You begin to have foreign banks moving into Australia under various pretexts, because we didn't yet have ability for foreign banks to have a license here but as subsidiaries and so forth, including London's Hill Samuel, which began to tap big money flows from all kinds of money shuffling activities. And this was the beginning too of the property bubble in real terms with Hill Samuel funding Aussie home loan mortgages. And, um, secure, and, it's, and pioneering securitisation. Yeah, it started bundling up and reselling those on selling them. Uh, Hill Samuel consultant John Hewson became the economics advisor to Treasurer John Howard, pushing for the financial inquiry that eventually issued the Campbell Report, which spelt out explicitly no more government controls over bank lending, no government role in banking, no government control in interest rate and capital flows, and also proposed the float of the dollar. Now, most of this was blocked by Malcolm Fraser, but Bob Hawke took it up. And, um, you know, they rebadged that whole Campbell report into the Martin report. And then Paul Keating finished off the job uh, with Hill Samuel receiving one of the first foreign banking licences and becoming Macquarie Bank. And, of yep. course, Keating's superannuation, um, invention of superannuation, would make it the millionaire factory. Macquarie Bank went on to pour huge amounts of dollars into neoliberal think tanks, pushing um, things like the national competition policy, PPPs, public-private partnerships, um, to completely um, smash all kinds of regulations. That was its objective. So it's one, thing for, it's one thing for a government to pass laws to deregulate the financial system. 
you need to have institutions like Macquarie Bank to actually smash the regulated shape of the economy. Yeah. And that's, that's what it did. Before we go on, Alyssa, I want to make a, an important point, though. Um, the seminal report in the middle of this process was this thing in 1982, the, the Campbell Report, the, the original financial system inquiry, and there's been two since then. Sir Keith Campbell, who was the head of Hooker Corporation, who was tapped to run that report, at, you know, the idea being a Macquarie Bank guy, John Hewson's, and, and there were other Macquarie Bank uh, influences on that report. Um, so we'll get to that more in a minute. But Keith Campbell himself had been one of these financiers who was, he was also part of an American investment bank subsidiary in Australia in the mid-70s, which was the first um, uh, institution to back Christopher Scase. Right, so these people had already, the, the, the financial uh, backers of the corporate cowboys, like Scase and, and, uh, and uh, Bond, were the same people who smashed the regulatory protections for the economy to allow those guys to do what they did in the 80s and take over completely, mm. right? Um, they, were getting, they were getting out of the way those basic protections which were for us. There was a reason they were there, but these people hate regulation because they believe in the law of the jungle because they're the predators, not the prey. Mm -hmm. And what they began to do um, in the mid-1970s was to wheedle their way inside governments to yep. become the major advisors, private external advisors to government through think tanks. And Macquarie Bank was a big funder of a lot of these think tanks which yep. were set up um, by an international organisation known as the Mont Pelerin Society, which got its start in 1947. And it was um, based on the Austrian economic school. And what you had is two of the key founders of the Mont Pelerin Society, Milton Friedman and Friedrich von Hayek, who came out to Australia in 1975 and 1976. And they recruited a whole raft of followers uh, and launched a number of these think tanks. Um, so uh, just to bring in Nicholas Moore here, because we put out a press release about this on the 15th of September, and of course Nicholas Moore has been brought in as the head of the Financial Regulator Assessment Authority, uh, but he is a key ideologue of the Mont Pelerin Society as founder and director of one of four think tanks in Australia, that's the Tasman Institute. The others are the H.R. Nichols Society, the IPA, the Institute of Public Affairs, and the Centre for Independent Studies. So these think tanks stand for getting rid of all regulation. They are anti-regulation. They're not for better regulation. Or they're anti-regulation, right? And that's why we're going to give you a bit more detail now, but this is why we're highlighting it, because Josh Frydenberg has just appointed a man to oversee the regulators who is anti-regulation. And we should put it, we'll, 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 the, the image on the screen is of um, Nicholas Moore himself had to be dragged before the Royal Commission in 2018 because of what Macquarie Bank did, right? And as if he's going to be the, an honest broker overseeing the regulators now. Yeah. Um, now, one of the key people that I wanted to mention as part of one of these think tanks, which who was recruited by Friedman and Hayek when they were here, is Michael Porter. And he kind of typifies, he wrote a lot of the Victorian programs that trashed this state. But he typifies the attitude. Um, in 1996, he bragged that his team sabotaged economic development, and particularly the visions of Whitlam. Um, he and his ministers, Whitlam's ministers, notably Rex Connor, Porter said, 
would bring in these huge plans for water projects, rail policy proposals, and we just trashed them and went with ours. We stripped them and left them as empty bones. So what, what commenced was um, a devastating series of um, deregulation and privatisation manoeuvres. So the entire economy was basically deregulated. Industry, labour market, banking, national assets were privatised, crucial services, infrastructure were privatised. The public service was progressively outsourced. And nowhere more so than in our lovely state of Victoria. Yep. And Jeff Kennett was the protégé of a key figure in the Institute for Public Affairs and longtime chairman of ANZ Bank, John Goff. Uh, but the program, Kennett's program, was written by Michael Porter from the Tasman Institute and Des Moore from the Institute for Public Affairs. It was called Victoria, an Agenda for Change. This came out in 1991. Uh, and just as two examples of it, electricity, um, the Tasman Institute wrote Kennett's $30 billion electricity privatisation plans from which Macquarie Bank made hundreds of millions of dollars in fees and joined consortia that ended up buying the assets. Um, later, Kennett's treasurer, Alan Stockdale, quit state parliament to work for Macquarie Bank. And uh, one of Kennett's advisors briefly in that period when he was Premier was... Stephen Main, the journalist who went on to found crikey.com.au because he didn't last that long with Kennett. Um, and Stephen Main is one of these guys that's, that's uh, committed to like maximum transparency. So he, he's, he documented a lot of this really well in the 90s. And he made the point that no single company benefited more from Kennett's $30 billion electricity privatisation spree, which was the, the most um, uh, comprehensive uh, and, and, and quickest privatisation of any in the world under what Kennett did in Victoria. He said no company benefited more than Macquarie Bank. And the guy from Macquarie Bank, who was, who was basically almost moved to Victoria because he was so busy doing deals with Kennett and Alan Stockdale all the time on these electricity deals, either earning hundreds of millions of dollars in fees brokering the sales or being part of the consortia that was buying the assets, was Nicholas Moore, the director of the Tasman Institute that wrote the policy. Who's now the head of the Financial Regulator Assessment Authority <laughs> overseeing the regulation of our banks and supposedly to stop people being ripped off. Yeah. Um, it's a joke. Now, the other example I wanted to mention quickly is the health um, destruction of health infrastructure in Victoria, which was written by, again, this whole Project Victoria team of the IPA and Tasman Institute. So what they called for was the privatisation of over 3,000 of the 5,000 state nursing home beds they called for making better use of private hospitals by closing 1,300 public hospital beds, slashing salaries and staffing rates for the remaining public hospitals, reducing administrative staffing levels to those of the late 1980s, busting unions and replacing them with enterprise bargaining, cutting non-medical staff drastically, corporatising hospitals and contracting out services. And the upshot of that was they did sack about 3,500 nurses. They closed 17 hospitals, including the Fairfield Infectious Diseases Hospital, which, you know... Might have been handy. Might have been handy in a pandemic, because if you can send all your, one, all your patients of an infectious disease to one hospital where all the people who work there are experts, right, you can, you can make sure you avoid this phenomena of infecting hospitals and staff having to be furloughed and all that kind of thing. Um, we are paying the price in these last few years for the, the kinds of things that Kennett did under the advice of these people back then. And we've documented all of this extensively over the last um, 
couple of decades. So, so back to what I said before, Elisa, these people are the predators in the jungle, right? They see it that way. That's why, of course, they hate regulation. Regulation is, is, the, is the, the fences between them and their prey, mm. right? And that's who is now, Josh Frydenberg has now appointed a, a, a poacher turned gamekeeper um, uh, as the head of the corporate regulator and to oversee him an actual financial predator in Nicholas Moore, mm. right? And um, referring to what I said earlier about Wayne Ditchburn, you can't look at this and go, see, we'll never beat him. Because <laughs> if you can take that attitude and you never will beat him. You've got to look at it and go, you bastards, you're not getting away with this. This is intolerable. And we can use examples, fight, fights like Sterling First, etc., to get an inquiry. If we get an inquiry by the Senate, Elisa, the Senate writes its own terms of reference. It won't be a joke like the Royal Commission that Malcolm Turnbull writes a terms of reference for the banks to approve. No, no, it can be a much better, um, much more incisive inquiry that can lay all this bare. Now, we'll move on to our next topic. Um, AUKUS, the drums of war are deafening. And of course, we're referring here to the new alliance that's just been um, declared by Scott Morrison, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden um, 48 hours ago. And we'll have more to say about this in coming weeks because we've, this is the initial assessments. Sorry, the, the, the alliance was between Mr President, Boris and the fellow down under, pal. <laughs> yes, <laughs> pal. Um, so Scott Morrison said in the wake of this in a press conference, he said, the relatively benign environment we have enjoyed in many decades in our region is behind us. We have entered, no doubt, a new era. Well, it's a new era of their making. making. Um, the Osman talks, uh, Australia-US ministerial talks, have just gone on at which our Defence Chief, um, Peter Dutton, talked about how um, you know these arrangements are going to include enhanced force posture initiatives, more US troop rotations and ordnance storage, and greater defence industry cooperation. And the US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin um, basically you know, applauded this, saying, today we endorsed major force posture in initiatives that will expand our access and presence in Australia. Of course, the Chinese have already reacted. And, sorry, and on top of that, you're right to quote Lloyd Austin, but remember another part of this picture is the POMs. Now, at least, at least the Americans are on... The same share the same ocean as us and China. China's at the top of the Pacific. Mm. We're at the bottom. America's on the east, right? The Poms, way over there on the other side of the world, are now going to be permanently stationed with their rubber ducky aircraft carrier in the Pacific. Britannia ruling the waves again. And we think this is a good thing. It's a and and look, consider the optics. And you, you're going to the people need to take this China quote seriously. But just consider another part of it. This is white people of the world unite. Mm. And we're saying it in our region. Mm. If we don't like to be... I mean, why shouldn't the Asians say to Australia, if you don't like it, leave? That's what we quick, we're quick to say to any migrant we don't, in Australia, right? We're in Asia, people, yet we're acting like we're mortally threatened here um, and we need to have this white alliance to keep us safe. To dominate the region. And it's the same mentality that was behind the yellow peril hysteria 100 years ago. So um, the Chinese Foreign Ministry has stated this will undermine peace and stability in the region, which it assuredly will. You know, we're the provocateurs here. 
Um, Global Times stated that Chinese military experts have warned that such a move will potentially make Australia a target of a nuclear strike if a nuclear war breaks out, even when Washington said it won't arm Canberra with nuclear weapons because it's easy for the US to equip Australia with nuclear weapons and submarine-launched ballistic missiles when Australia has the submarines. And a Global Times editorial uh, went on to say, and of course this reflects the position of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that Australia has turned itself into an adversary of China. No matter how Australia arms itself, it is still a running dog of the United States. If Australia dares to provoke China more blatantly, China will certainly punish it with no mercy. Now, let me just say, I mean, that, that's, that's blood curdling, but you've got to um, understand China reads our press as well. We've just read China's press. China reads our press as well. They read people like Andrew Hasty two years ago calling China Nazi Germany, right? They read all this stuff. So this is not one-sided. What we've just done, Elisa, is of a type but a greater escalation even than what Julia Gillard did in 2011 when Obama announced his pivot to Asia after just literally ripping apart a country in Libya on a lie and he announced we're pivoting to Asia now moving 60% of our forces to surround China, and Julia Gillard did what no Prime Minister had ever been prepared to do, which is let America set up a base in Darwin, right? And people like um, Malcolm Fraser and old-timers who had had a lot of experience in the Cold War were screaming about this. Malcolm Fraser wrote a book in 2014 called Dangerous Allies, where he's talking about Britain and the United States. And it, it, the, the kicker for the book was... Australia needs to be in alliance with America for its security, but Australia only needs security because it's in an alliance with America. That's what the third longest serving Prime Minister of Australian history said. Paul Keating, who we just badmouthed earlier in this show on economic matters, he said something incredibly sensible in that same vein yesterday. Paul Keating is at the younger end of that generation of old timers. Um, and I want to remind people also about this sense that China's a threat to us. A lot of it's been based on, on actual lies. I mean, China's never invaded anybody. We're the ones that have been going around the world invading people. But even other than that, think about the things that the media's pumped out, like the Murdoch media. Things like, oh, China's buying up Australia. There, there was a sense of invasion. 2018 book um, called Silent Invasion. Mm. We have, look at our website. We have debunked this stuff left, right and centre. Right? There was never any mass buy-up of Australia by China. There was all, it's, it's, the, it's a tiny investor, even behind Luxembourg, for crying out no, loud. It's Canada and right? Britain and the US. Right now, Canadian pension <laughs> funds are taking buying up all the water in the Murray-Darling Basin. Yeah, don't hear about it, that. Don't hear about that, because it's, it's, it was China, China, China. And you were made to feel there was a threat that didn't exist. It turned public opinion completely against China. And now the people who lied and did that are able to dramatically escalate our affront and the Chinese are saying, look, we wanted to be your best friends, we wanted to be your best customers, We've, we're pumping more money into your economy than anybody in the history of the world, right? But if you want to make us an enemy, you're going to make us an enemy. Mm, yeah. And none of it is necessary. These um, new alliances from the Quad to AUKUS are chillingly similar to the series of alliances and entente that were being shaped and changed and refashioned ahead of World War One, yep. and we are sleepwalking in a similar direction into another war. What you see is that there's a alternative, 
I mean, there could have been an alternative to two world wars that shaped the last century if people had had a different approach than setting up alliances against enemies. Working together, which is uh, ironically China's approach, they've got an inclusive approach to get everyone to collaborate despite differences. That well, look, has look, to at be... how, look at how China is leading the, the, the community effort in Central Asia to, to try and solve the Afghan problem. Not militarily, economically. Yeah. Right? All the countries, neighbouring countries, working together to help Afghanistan to build infrastructure, uplift it economically. Take a long-term view, knowing that if you do uplift it economically, then, yeah. the, then the conditions that breed, breed extremism... Um, will dissipate. Yeah. Right. And and look, it's people have to take this seriously. When countries are clear that they're now, you know, because any war talk in the 21st century between great powers is a, is nuclear war. Take that seriously, and we have to stop it. We cannot let this the gang in charge of this government get away with sleepwalking us into that. Yeah, we have to get back to diplomacy and there are people there that are willing to do it in this country. We can get that going straight away. Now, we've run out of time for today's show. Um, contact us for more information. There's plenty more in this week's alert service on all these topics. Uh, thanks, Robert. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe and we'll see you again next week. Mm -hmm.